The Apostle John walked closely with Jesus during all of his earthly ministry. He was used of God to give us a remarkable, intimate, powerful account of the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of John was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. John composed his Gospel to provide reasons of saving faith proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares these things are written so that you may believe. Continuing our study in the Gospel of John this morning, and specifically continuing our, our walk through this amazing prayer in John chapter 17. You'll recall for context This is a a block of the Gospel of John that began back in chapter 13 with the uh, beginning of the the narrative in John regarding Thursday night before on Friday we come to the cross. This narrative began with the poignant and powerful leadership lesson of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. His discourse in training the disciples in 13, 14, 15, 16, has been the the master class as he prepares these 11 followers to be the foundational human leaders of the movement that will be, in the broadest possible sense, the New Testament church. Now in chapter 17, in a transition between his, his teaching ministry, which culminates in chapter 16, and his sacrifice on the cross, which, which begins with the arrest and trials that we'll see in chapter 18, the, the, the whole narrative of the Gospel of John, in a sense, pivots on this prayer in chapter 17. His, his teaching ministry to his disciples prior to the cross now comes to an end. His sacrifice, the actual act of his sacrifice for sinners is about to take place in chapter 17, he prays to the Father. I, uh, I hopefully lightly, but I, I suggested and challenged that, that honestly this prayer, this John 17 great high priestly prayer could perhaps be called the Lord's prayer more so than the, the model prayer which Jesus prayed earlier when he, uh, in response to his disciples, asking him to teach them to pray, he laid out a, a, a skeleton of how to pray. Uh, That prayer was not the Lord talking to his father because in that prayer, he speaks of forgiveness. The Lord Jesus Christ never had to ask forgiveness for anything because he never did anything wrong. No sin, no fault, no fall, no, no flaw, no fault, no sin. But this prayer in John 17 is God the Son pouring out his heart to God the Father, largely on behalf of his people. This large central paragraph that we'll be looking at today from verse six down to verse 19 is him him praying for his followers. In the first few verses that we looked at last week, his prayer was largely for himself, for and about himself. Uh, Here, he is praying most immediately, he's praying for the 11 men that are with him that have been with him for these three years, but certainly by extension, he's praying for all of of us who will follow 
him. John 17, verses six through 19, Jesus's prayer continues. He prays, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and that they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Roman numeral one, as Jesus the great high priest prays for his people, he prays, Roman one, for a persevering people. A persevering people. Now, persevere is like patience with teeth. To persevere in something is to, is to be um, rock solid in commitment to see it through. The, the theologians of the Reformation called it perseverance of the saints when they talked about the permanence of the salvation of those who are truly born again. Eternal security sees it absolutely in terms of its, of its outcome that all who are ever saved are forever saved. But perseverance sees it in terms of its, of its outworking. What does it look like? Those who are in Christ persevere in their faith in Christ. They're a persevering people. Letter A, we see first whose they are. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Now we've talked about this, this picture of, of salvation viewed from the most heavenly of perspectives, that those who are in Christ are a gift from God the Father to God the Son to be given back to God the Father for his glory. The heavenward perspective on your salvation and transformation in Christ is a picture of your belonging to God the Father and God the Son in a 
eternal relationship established at your new birth by means of that grace which is extended from the cross. That's the heavenward perspective. Of course, the earthward perspective is that moment when you, when you turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ by faith, knowing that ultimately even that moment is a grace gift from the living God for you. By grace, you have been saved according to Ephesians 2, 8 and following through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. You didn't work your way into salvation. You responded to a gracious invitation with repentance and faith and were thus found to be the gift of an inter-Trinitarian love and regard and gifting. This, this phrase, I have manifested your name, we need to look at how, how this prayer is using the idea of God's name. You're already maybe a little familiar with this sort of usage of name. When the word of God speaks of acting in Jesus' name or praying in the name of God or, or, or doing things in God's name, it is not saying that there's some magical set of syllables whether it's the name Jesus or whether it's, it's God, that there's some magic set of syllables that we can invoke like a magic word to make things happen. Jesus is not the equivalent of abracadabra or hocus pocus. To act and believe in the name of Jesus, or Jesus here speaking of his Father's name, is rather like, and this is a, this is a silly illustration, but I hope you'll get it. It's kind of like in, a, in an old Western where the sheriff is chasing the bad guy and the sheriff says, stop in the name of the law. That is, stop because I here represent the, the identity, the authority, and the character of the law. So when a, when a law enforcement officer pulls you over, it's not because, assuming his first name is Fred, and I don't know any law enforcement officers named Fred, so I made that up. It's not just Fred and you having a conversation. Fred is acting in the name of the law. And thus the identity, the character, and the authority in which he's acting is not his. When we speak here of, of I, when the Lord says, I have manifested your name, it doesn't just mean that he's taught them some words, though he has, and he'll speak to that. It means that in his actions, the identity and the character and the authority of the Father have been present. And thus, these, these people, that 11, that small ragged group of 11, and by extension, all who would ever come to faith in Christ are his, whose they are. Let her be what they've kept. Finishing verse six, they have kept your word. Those who are redeemed, those who are redeemed are transformed. Those who are redeemed are transformed. Those whom uh, have come to belong to us are keeping your word. There is an absolute correspondence between those who are, <laughs> those who are following Jesus and those who follow Jesus are the same people. Ooh, that's as deep as it's gonna get this morning. Do not look for me to get deeper than that. The followers of Jesus follow Jesus. They have kept your word. 
Today, we do not have all of the verbal content that Jesus shared with his disciples across those three years of his public teaching. But we don't have less. We have more. That, I do not do this often, but my goodness, that ought to elicit an amen. We do not have less than Jesus's conversations with his disciples, we have more than Jesus' conversations with his disciples. All right. All right. Jesus couldn't teach his disciples. He taught them the truths that are represented in the book of Galatians, but he didn't have the book of Galatians. It was written a couple of decades later, etc., etc. They've kept your word. Whose they are, what they've kept, let her see what they know. In verses seven and eight. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. The followers of Jesus Christ know the truth about Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is absolutely uniquely only, the only human being to ever live Virgin born, the only human being to ever live to be, while he was entirely human, he was also simultaneously and entirely God. He was God come in human flesh. And his sacrifice for sinners on the cross is the only means whereby we can be born again and brought into a right relationship with the living God. I had a well mannered and polite conversation with a gentleman this week who was, who was uh, he, he, he had stumbled into finding out what I do for a living, though he's not from Fort Myers. Didn't know about our church, but, but again, uh, came to know what I do for a living. And he started describing for me his relationship with God and repeatedly assuring me that his relationship with God was just fine, but as he described that, he described his relationship with God as a relationship on his own terms. He and God had apparently worked out any number of things apart from him collapsing in repentance and faith before the cross of Jesus Christ. And at the end of the conversation, I, time was short, and I, I said, friend, please do not be content in your self-created imaginary relationship with God. I gotta love you enough to tell you, man, you're in deep, deep trouble unless you come to God through the one who is the way, the truth, and the life because no one comes to the Father except by him. And by the way, that little discourse that I share with that man, I got the opportunity because he triggered on what I do for a living. But the words that I used are words that should be comfortable coming out of the mouth of everybody in this room who knows Jesus. I didn't give him the full Monty of my educational background and deep scholarship. I just told him, since Jesus is the only way, he can't make up another way. You can do that. You can do that what they know. They know who Jesus is and they know what Jesus has come. And if you're here this morning and you, uh, you, have, you have crafted some, some custom-made model 
whereby you perceive yourself to be right with God on the basis of, of, of your own individualized, self-manufactured path to know God, I urge you, come to Jesus as he is. Turn from your sin. Trust him by faith. Paul told the elders of the Ephesian church in Acts 20 after spending three years ministering among them. He said, I didn't hold back anything that was profitable, but instead I taught publicly and from house to house while holding back nothing that was profitable. I taught repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the heart of what's profitable. Come to Jesus. What they know. Roman numeral two, a particular people. Verses nine and 10. Letter A, first he has given us a gift of our identity. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Letter A, our identity as those whom he has particularly loved, his people. Well, Brother Russell, don't, don't we know that Jesus loves all people, including sinners? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. He loves all people, including those who will not come to faith in him. But he has a, a, a different caliber, as he says here, as he expresses here, of love for his own. Uh, this week, it will be my privilege, as I serve alongside so many of you in Vacation Bible School, to, uh, to be the, the Bible storyteller for the three, four, and five-year-olds. Uh, it's like I need a translator, but I really, really enjoy it. And I have the this this week we'll be studying the story of Joseph from the Old Testament, and we'll be telling those three, four, and five year olds that the story of Joseph is a story that points to Jesus. And I can't wait to share it. And I care deeply about the three, four, and five year olds that do this, that come to our vacation Bible school. I uh, I love them enough that I will set aside this week, not that I'm that big a deal, but like so many of you, rather than come here after work, I'll just hang around here after work and, uh, and get involved in that because I love those little preschoolers. I truly do. But they ain't Levi and they ain't Reese. And that's just the way it is. Levi and Reese are my grandson and my granddaughter. And you talk about preschoolers that I love Seek, seek to do one of them any harm while you're within my blast radius. And you may find yourself blasted. They're mine. They're mine. And there is a, a unique and particular love that God has for his people. You say, well, that doesn't sit right with me. Read the verse I just read again. Jesus makes it very, I'm not praying at this moment. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those that are mine. And if you are in Christ, you need to not be proud of that designation. You didn't do anything to get it. But be humble, be grateful, be loving, be responsive. He has gifted you. This little phrase at the end of verse nine, they are yours. Do you not understand that that is eternity for you? Praise God, our identity, and then let her be our capacity. <clears throat> the glory of our capacity, verse 10. 
All mine are yours, and yours are mine. Again, this picture of this intra-Trinitarian transaction and identity. And I am glorified in them. Remember, we've talked about what it is to be glorified. It is to, it is to reveal someone as they are. It is said that, that you and I are the only Jesus some people will ever see. And while that's not necessarily precisely true, the, the intent of that statement is to say we are responsible to bear the message of our king. We are responsible to bear the name of our king. We are responsible to reflect and depict Jesus as he is to a lost world that is absolutely desperate, though most of them do not know it. They are in peril for their souls. And you and I bear the words. You and I bear the indwelling spirit. You and I, if we are in Christ, bear the ambassadorial commission to share the eternal life-saving news which we have received. And in doing that, we glorify Jesus. We reveal him as he is. That is the glory of our capacity. And finally, Roman numeral three, a protected people. Verses 11 through 19. First, he prays for, for our security. Verses 11 and 12, I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. And I am coming to you. Jesus is impending death, resurrection, and then departure in the ascension are right there and he will not be physically present with his disciples anymore. Holy Father, keep them in your name. That is, keep them aligned with your character, your identity, your authority. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll chase this rabbit for two steps, and then I'll take this up maybe a bit more tomorrow when I record Beyond the Notes. Here, Jesus is not praying for a unity at all costs among all people who would answer yes to the question, are you a Christian? We live in an age where some, even some within the broad label of those who would call themselves Christian, would, would proclaim the need for unity even at the expense of truth. Unity must be found within truth. Where there is no embrace of truth, there can be no unity. What fellowship has darkness with light? But here Jesus would have that all the followers of Jesus Christ would stand together in his name. But his, his, his issue is our security. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them. Not one of them has been lost. Well, except the son of destruction, Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. There was no flaw in Jesus that caused the failure of Judas. Judas was never a follower of Christ. Um, in fact, I, there's a verse that's really, really important. If you want to understand what Judas was, and it will also help you understand because many of you know people 
Many of you know people who would say that they are ex-Christians. Many of you know people who would say, I used to be a Christian, but now I'm not. By the way, that's not true of any person ever. And in order to understand what's going on with a person who would make that claim, I want to take you to 1 John 2.19. 1 John 2.19. It is the explanation verse for those who claim to be former Christians. Book of 1 John chapter 2, 19. They went, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, listen to this, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. The ex-Christian, so-called, was never a Christian. That is absolutely true of Judas Iscariot. The statement that he, uh, that he uh, was lost that the scripture might be fulfilled in Acts chapter one, we're given a couple of citations from the Psalms, just as, a, as an aside within the aside. Psalm 69, verse 25, and Psalm 109, eight are cited in Acts one as scriptures that were fulfilled in the, in the departure of Judas Iscariot, who was never a Christian. The most tragic story of lost opportunity in the entire New Testament is the story of Judas Iscariot, and it is reflected every day in our culture by those who repeatedly hear the word of God, hang out with Christians, go through all kinds of the motions, but never, ever, ever, ever actually with a broken heart turn to Jesus in repentance and faith and, and follow him as the absolute Lord of their lives. And thus often get tired of going through the motions and acting out the part I would suspect that portraying a Christian is a pain if you're not one. That's where Judas landed. Portraying a Christian is a pain if you're not one. Their security. Letter B, their separation. By the word of God. Verse 13, 14. I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word. And the moment you start following Jesus, the moment you start obeying the truths of this book, the moment you represent the message of Jesus, which is incredibly good news for mankind, but presupposes incredibly bad news for mankind. The moment you accept that bad news, that all human beings are lost, that this is a world at war with God, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the moment you accept that, a wedge is driven between the way your heart and mind function and the way the heart and the mind of the world function and the world will hate you for it. That is separation. One very simple, one glaring example. We live in a culture. We live in a world where the highest behavioral ideal, the highest attitudinal ideal is to be true to yourself. 
You'll, you'll, hear it, you'll hear it over and over again in celebrity testimonies. You'll hear massive rounds of applause on the, on the celebrity audition shows when a person tells the story of, and then I finally decided I was going to be true to myself and express the authentic me, and the crowd goes wild with a standing ovation. The transparent self-idolization is rampant. You ought not trust yourself. Yourself is your biggest problem. And being true to yourself and expressing your authentic self, these are not ideals. These are your eternal death sentence. At the end of much discussion about the nature and character of God in the book of Job, God himself shows up. And Job has a face-to-face with the living God and sees God as he is. In that moment, Job said this about himself. It's in Job chapter 42, verses five and six. Speaking to God of himself. Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That is the self's response regarding the self in the face of understanding the living God. I just want to be true to myself. No, you don't. No, you don't. You want to be true to the living God in whose image you were created. The Bible says your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The most dangerous liar in your life is you. And unleashing the authentic you won't do anybody any good, least alone you. Make yourself the submitted servant of the living God through a relationship with Jesus Christ and live forever. One day to express the born again authentic you. I'm not arguing for hypocrisy. I'm arguing against the idolization and idealization of the self, which is rampant in our world. You check out on that and check into thinking biblically about who mankind is and specifically who you and your friends and neighbors are and you'll discover the hatred of the world right quick. Their separation, but then their sanctification. We're not set apart to be merely odd ducks. We're set apart for a mission, for a purpose. The last couple of verses. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. He takes the verses from the back part of verse 14 and repeats them verbatim as verse 16. He's said it twice with exactly the same words. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. We ain't from around here. We don't think like those who are from around here. We don't align with those who are from around here. We are made different by our relationship with Christ. We are motivated differently, we think differently. Notice this is not a commandment, this is a statement of fact that describes every believer. 
This does not describe you. The solution is not, I need to tune up my behavior. This is not about goats doing a better sheep impersonation. If this doesn't describe you, be saved. Be transformed. Follow Jesus as your Lord. Be set aside, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. This theme of being sent comes up over and over and over again. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. That is, I set myself aside for what is coming, that they also may be sanctified, set aside in truth. You know what's interesting about that paragraph? There's not a single command. That is not a paragraph of direction, it's a paragraph of description. When the word of God gives us a paragraph like this, that doesn't, this paragraph doesn't, okay, so therefore steps one through five, what am I supposed to go do tomorrow? This paragraph is not giving direction, it's giving description, so the challenge Dear friend, is for us to set our lives against this description. Am I what this paragraph describes? Is this prayer from the Son to the Father being reflected in my life as I follow Jesus? If it's not being reflected at all, follow Jesus. If it is evident to you that there are places, and it will be evident to you, that there are places where it could be more passionately aligned, follow Jesus all the more.